Thanks for joining us for our preaching podcast for the Point Church, Alberta campus. We believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. We pray that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. If you've got your Bibles, I hope that you do. Would you open them up to the book of Nehemiah chapter 10? Nehemiah chapter 10, we're in a series which we've entitled Rebuild, and in this series we have been looking at the book of Nehemiah to see how God used Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the faith of God's people. And over the last few weeks as we've been working through Nehemiah, we've seen the people complete the rebuilding of the walls, and and then we saw a revival break out among the people. They read the word of God, and as they did, their lives were changed by that. They celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, and then following the feast, the people collectively prayed a prayer of repentance. That's where we were last week, and so last week as we looked at Nehemiah chapter 9, we saw the people pray a prayer of confession, and as we looked at that prayer, we saw two things. First, we, we saw the importance of repentance, and we talked about why it's so important to repent of our sin. And then second, we saw the unexplainable faithfulness of God. Through all of Israel's history, time and time again, we saw how God was faithful to his people even when they had been faithless. So what we saw was that even when we are faithless, God is still faithful. And what I tried to show you is how um, repentance and God's faithfulness, how they go hand in hand. They, one goes with the other for us to walk throughout the Christian life. And today, as we come to chapter 10, my hope is that you will see that one of the many fruit of repentance is a newfound commitment to God. In fact, that's where we left off at the end of chapter 9 last week. As we finished reading chapter 9, we saw the people committing themselves to renew their covenant with God. And so we're going to back up for a second and look at chapter 9, verse 38, because that kind of lays the groundwork for chapter 10. Now, Nehemiah 9, verse 38, it's the last verse of chapter 9, says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing, On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And and I want to remind you really quick that the all this that they were talking about in verse 39 is the long history of God's faithfulness toward his people. But it's also the people's acknowledgement that the Babylonian exile was God's just discipline of his people because they had rebelled against him. The all this is the broken covenant that lay before the people that in repentance they want to renew and revive. You see, in antiquity, a covenant was an oath-based agreement made between two parties where one party promises to serve the other while the reciprocal party agrees to protect and to bless the other. Covenants often had stipulations with them that if kept resulted in blessing, but if broken resulted in curse. And that was, was just as true of the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants as it was of any covenant made just between rulers and people. Here the people are seeing that they had broken those covenants with God. They, they had not kept God's law. They had been disobedient. They had not remained faithful to God. And so what we see here is a renewal of the broken covenant. 
The whole context of chapter 10, as we look at chapter 10 together, the whole context is is one of the people rededicating themselves to God. The whole context is that of commitment. The people are committing themselves to God. So as we look at chapter 10 today, I want you to see it through that lens. The people are committing themselves to God, and they're going to do so in three specific ways. So let's take a look at that. Nehemiah chapter 10, we're going to start at verse 1, and we're gonna, what I'm going to do is, is instead of me reading that long list of names, if you got your Bibles out, you're seeing that long list of names, I'm just going to point to you and you have to say a name. No? Nobody wants to play that game. Oh, you guys are no fun. Okay, tell you what, here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll agree that what we're seeing in the first 27 verses of Nehemiah chapter 10 is a list of the names of the leaders of the community who signed this new covenant. Okay, we'll just agree. Nobody's going to read the name. Sound good? Okay, that's fair. So that's what we're going to do. And what I want you to see, though, is what follows immediately after verse 27. Because immediately after verse 27, we come to verse 28, and we're going to read that, and and we'll talk about that. The, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, And enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. And to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. That's verses 28 and 29. And what I want you to see here is that while this is covenant renewal that started with the leaders signing their name, this is not a top-down covenant renewal. This is not the leaders dictating this covenant renewal. This is all of the people coming together to renew their covenant. That's what we're seeing in verses 28 and 29. It's all of God's people coming together. It's the governor, the priests, the Levites, their chiefs and nobles, their men, their women, their sons and daughters, everyone who has knowledge and understanding. And you'll remember from two weeks ago that that phrase, knowledge, everyone that has knowledge and understanding, is a direct reference to their kids. It's talking about the children of the community who are old enough to understand what's being told to them, to internalize it, and to apply it to their lives. This is everyone committing to follow the Lord. And what we must recognize as we look at this is the reality that the people of God are living a collective faith. The people are committing themselves together to follow the Lord. And as we see that right here, I can't help but wonder, why are we so prone to try and live our faith out by ourselves? Why are we so prone to try and commit to follow Christ on our own? Why are we so averse to coming together with other men or or other women and saying, let's do this together? Sure, we'll gather together on the Sunday service. You guys are here. Right? We, we're here, we're gathering together, but, but why, why are we, why, why am I so intimidated by the idea of banding with one or two other men or, or women who also follow Christ and coming to them and saying, let's do this together? I think we do that, I think we like to pretend that 
everything's okay because we're so afraid of what other people will think when they recognize that we don't have it all together. We're so afraid of what people are going to think of us when, when we tell them, hey, I'm struggling here. My, my faith isn't so strong here. I need help here. We care more about what other people think instead of what God thinks. But, but what if we cared more about what God thinks? You know, I, I think one of the reasons so many of us struggle to be the Christians we've been called to be, to be the disciples of Jesus that we've been called to be, one of the many reasons why we struggle with that is because we're not willing to do this collectively. We try to do it as a group but hear me, or by ourselves, but, but hear me on this. The example throughout the Bible across the entire Bible, is one of the people of God living out their faith together. We don't get an example in the Bible of a single person trying to just be holy to God all by himself. So let me encourage you today to, to, to do life together, collectively. Listen, I'm, I'm your pastor, and I can tell you I don't have it all together And if you don't believe me, my dad is sitting right there. He can tell you, I don't have it all together. I sin. Don't believe me? Ask Katie and Kylie. They're sitting right there. They'll tell you, I sin. I make mistakes all too often. I need, I need brothers and sisters in Christ that are going to help encourage me along, that are going to help push me along, that are going to help spur me on to be more like Christ every single day. I need that. I'm your pastor guess what? You need it too. We need each other to follow Christ. So let's commit to follow Christ together. That's what the people of Jerusalem were doing that day. But I told you that they they committed themselves to God in three specific ways, and now I want to show that to you. So first, I want you to see that the people were committed to obey God. In verses 30 and 31, they say, We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. And, and as we read that, we, we must remember the context, the, the time and place into which these promises are being made. We're talking about the covenant people of God. They are a people who are addressing specific sin problems that have existed within their community all throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We've seen some of these already as we've been studying through the book of Nehemiah. So when they address intermarriage, they're addressing a specific prohibition that God had given them. Remember, they're the covenant people of God. They're a people that God has set aside to be holy, to be a nation of priests to the world. And what we're seeing here in verse 30 is that the people are promising to obey God's command from Deuteronomy chapter 7, where they're called to maintain that holiness. And and we need to understand that that command that was given was not arbitrary. God wanted his people to understand as they were going into this land that he had promised to give them that if they intermarried with the people of those lands, those people would draw them away from the Lord. 
He has called them to be a holy nation, holy to him, set aside, special for him, so that they could represent him to the rest of the world. And he knew that if they chose to follow those people, they would be drawn away from him. Which is why Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 4 says, after giving the command forbidding them to intermarry, it says, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. You see, the issue was about their faith. The issue was about their relationship with God. It was not about nationality. It was not about race or skin color or ethnicity. It was about their faith and their relationship with God. And that's just as important for us as Christians today in 2020 as it was for the people of God 2,500 years ago. You see, this command is a command that has been brought forward in the New Testament for us. 1 Corinthians 6.14 tells us, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do you know what that means? That means for us, if you're single and you're going to date or, or you're going to get married, it means that you date another believer. You marry another believer. You don't date and, and marry somebody outside the community of faith. You don't engage in this missionary dating. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say missionary dating? You, you see somebody, they're not a Christian, and you think in your mind, if I date that person, I can lead them to Jesus. And that's a great thought, except that the reality is that that almost never works. We're not called to missionary dating. And, and again, this command to not be unequally yoked, it's not a command to prohibit us from having good things. It's, it's a command that has our best interest in heart at heart because the reality is we're far more likely to be drawn away from God than drawing that other person toward God. So if you see somebody you want to date and they're not a Christian, get them saved before before you date them. That's the takeaway from that. And the reality, you know, if, if you think about this, you think, sure, Josh, you're, that, you're saying that, but is that really true? All you got to do is look at the Bible. Look at the entire history of Israel going back all the way all the way to as they enter the promised land. Time and time again, they, they disobeyed this command not to intermarry. And time and time again, from the king on down, they were led into sin. They were led into disobedience. They were led away from the Lord. He wasn't trying to restrict them. He was trying to lead them into life. And it's the same thing for us. But that wasn't the only way that they were promising to obey God. In verse 31, we see a few more examples of how they were committed to obedience. Verse 31 says, And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or, or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. And, and on the surface, this sounds pretty straightforward, right? This sounds like the people are promising just to observe the Sabbath day. But remember the bigger picture. Remember, this is the people, these Jews, are, are people, are exiles who are returning to the land. And as they come into the land, the Israelites by number are far less than everyone that's living in and around, around them. And everyone that's living around them does not celebrate the Sabbath. They don't honor God's command because they're not followers of God. And so it was to the Israelites' economic advantage to trade on the Sabbath. 
And there's, there's also kind of a loophole here because the Sabbath law, by the letter of the law, you could buy from somebody without breaking the Sabbath because it was the seller who was breaking the Sabbath. You see, so, so there's a, a, an, exam, or an opportunity for them to, to have an advantage, but these people, they recognized that obedience was more important. Instead of looking for loopholes, they were agreeing to just obey the command and taking a day to honor the Lord, to know that the Lord was more important than, than this economic advantage was important to them. And while the Sabbath commands of the Old Testament do not get carried forward for us as Christians who are in a different covenant, there's still a valuable principle here for us. There, there's value in setting aside a day where we can rest from our work where we can honor the Lord, where we can know that God is good, that he has provided everything for us, where we can worship God and just enjoy God. But it wasn't just the Sabbath that the people were promising to observe. They were also promising to observe the Sabbath year every seven years where the fields were allowed to rest and debts were forgiven. Now, the debt forgiveness part of this, we saw that a couple weeks ago in chapter 5 with Pastor John as we saw that the people were taking advantage of each other and they were disobeying the commands. The people had been oppressing their fellow Jews with debts and with interest. They had failed to forgive debts every seven years as was required by Deuteronomy 15. And, And while we don't have anything like a Sabbath year for us, again, the principles here can apply. The principle of stewarding God's creation, the the principles of loving and providing for our fellow believers, of not extorting them, these principles still come forward as good instruction from the Lord for us today. But in the bigger theme of obedience to God, as we're thinking about this idea of obedience to God, there's an elephant in the room that, that I think we have to talk about for a minute. And, and, and this wasn't even in my sermon until late yesterday afternoon. But it's been weighing on my heart all week long. It's like it, it started, no kidding, on, I think it was Tuesday, I was out mowing the grass. Mowing the grass, and this, this just started weighing on my heart. Because as we talk about obe- obedience, I, I think there are some of us who think that the whole point of living lives as Christians is to avoid sinning. So we'll ask questions like, is this a sin? Is, is this a sin? If I do X, am I sinning? We'll ask questions like that. And, and the problem with that is that that is not what being a Christian was ever supposed to be about. Being a Christian is about being like Christ. That's what the word Christian means. It means little Christ. It's not about avoiding sin. Our our goal shouldn't be to avoid sin. Our goal should be to be like Christ. That's what our goal is. Being a Christian who's trying to avoid sin is like being on a baseball team that's trying to win the game by committing the fewest errors instead of hitting the most home runs. That's what it's like. But here's the thing. You don't win baseball games by committing the fewest errors. You win baseball games by hitting home runs. You win baseball games by getting that guy across home plate. And for us, getting across home plate is being like Jesus. It's hitting home runs is is being like Christ. 
We want to win. And, and we don't win by committing the fewest errors, by avoiding the most sin. We win by hitting home runs, by being like Jesus every single day. We strive to be like Christ. So asking the question, is this a sin or is that a sin? Am I sinning if I do that? That's the wrong question. The question is, what leads me to look like Jesus? What leads me to follow Christ better? That's the question we need to be asking as we talk about obedience because obedience is all about being like Christ. We want to be like Christ because we love Christ and because we love Christ, we obey him. Those those rules that we need to follow They're not meant to hem us in and keep us from enjoying life. They're meant like guardrails on a highway on the edge of a cliff. They're meant to keep us safe as we trek on to be like Jesus. Obedience isn't about not sinning. Obedience is about being like Christ. And it's based out of our love for God. We love Christ, and because we love him, we obey him. So the people here have have committed to obey God. That's the first way that they've committed to the Lord. But I also want you to see that the people were committed to right worship. They were committed to right worship. And we see that in verses 32 through 34. Take a look with me. Hope you've got your Bibles out there. We, t- we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And as I read that here, as, as we look at that, you might be tempted to say, Josh, how, how is that a commitment to right worship? That, that sounds more like a commitment to bring offerings, does it not? But we, we, we need to keep in mind the whole context. A, a first reading would, would say that that is a commitment to bring offerings, but remember the bigger picture. Remember what's going on in Nehemiah and, and in Ezra before as we've been studying this book. What's happening here is that the people are promising to provide for the temple everything that is required in order for temple worship to occur. You you may remember as we started this series that that I told you that Artaxerxes, King Artaxerxes back in Persia, had sent Nehemiah to Jerusalem, and as he sent him to Jerusalem, he provided all of the materials necessary to rebuild the wall. He provided the money, the, the, the lumber, everything they needed to rebuild the wall was provided by the king. What you may not know is that the king had also funded the rebuilding of the temple. That's covered in the book of Ezra. And what you may not also know is, in addition to covering the rebuilding, it was King Artaxerxes who was making temple worship happen. King Artaxerxes, the Persian king, was the one that was providing all of the animals for sacrifice. He was providing all of the money to fund the process of using the temple. And so what we're seeing here is that the people are are ready to actually worship God. No more are they going to have a heathen king in a far-off land providing for their worship because they understood that sacrifices given to the Lord that cost them nothing meant nothing to God. 
So they want to own their worship. They want to truly worship. Had they been worshiping with the king providing everything, all they were doing was going through the motions. They were acting it out, but they weren't actually giving to the Lord. And so the people want to own their worship. They commit to do that. They also commit to cast lots by families to ensure that there was wood for the altar. And, and this sounds kind of trivial, but it's, it's important. Because while, while we won't find any command in the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, that's what makes up the Torah. While you won't find a single command in there about a wood offering, what you will find in Deuteronomy, or sorry, Leviticus chapter 6, is a command that the altar had to be continuously burning. You always had a fire on the altar, and the only way you make sure that that happens every single day, 24-7, 365, the only way that happens is if you've got a lot of wood. I mean a lot of wood. They always had to have wood on that fire to make sure that it was burning all the time. And what we're seeing here is that each of the families is going to own this process as they take turns to bring the wood. Now, now, historically, in the days of Joshua, that responsibility to provide wood for the altar had fallen on the city of Gibeon. Gibeon was originally a, a city that was given to the tribe of Benjamin, but later was given to the Levites as a Levitical city. But now the entire covenant community is going to own this responsibility. You see, the people wanted to prioritize their worship. They, they wanted to own it. They, they wanted to share the load. And as we think about this for us, I want to ask in, in all earnestness, are we committed to worship? Are we committed to worship? Don't answer too fast. Is, is worship a priority for us? The people sacrificed to make it a priority, do we? I'm not talking about just the Sunday gathering. I'm, I'm talking about a life that's lived out in worship. I'm talking about connect groups and disciple groups, but I'm also talking about a commitment to, to be the church who lives our lives on mission for Jesus. That's how we worship. Where we love people and we point them to Jesus. Where we serve people and we point them to Jesus. Where we give up our preferences, our desires, where we sacrifice so that we can lead other people to Jesus. I'm talking about lives that are lived out in worship. Are we committed to that kind of worship? That's, that's what we were seeing here in the people. They were committed to worship. Are we? So, so the people are committing themselves to God. They, they've committed to obey God. They've committed to right worship. But I also want you to see the third area where the people are committing themselves to God. And that's that I want, I want you to see that the people were committed to give generously. Take a look, verses 35 through 39. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of our Lord, also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions 
the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse for the people of Israel. And the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. And as we look at that, I hope what you're seeing is a commitment to give generously. Because that's what this is. It's a commitment to give generously. That word first fruits that we see there can also be the best of. So, so the people are promising to give the first and the best of their crops, their orchards, their livestock, even their sons to the Lord. Historically, this, this offering was made as an acknowledgement that the Lord owned the land and everything that was produced on it. it. It was an acknowledgement that the Lord had brought them into the land. So they gave the first part of their crop to God and they did so before they touched anything else. They weren't even allowed to harvest the rest of their harvest until they had given their first fruit offering. But if we want to see how this promise is a promise to give generously, then we need to to understand that this promise goes above and beyond what was required in the Torah. The Torah stipulated that there were only seven kinds of plants that had to be given to the people as the or given to God as a first fruit offering. Wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. There were seven plants that were supposed to be given as the first fruit offering. And when we know that, we can see that this promise to bring the first fruit of every tree was an act of exceptional devotion to God. We're seeing a generousness, a willingness to give the best of their crops to the Lord. But they are also promising to give their tithe. Now now on a practical level, the tithe was, was what paid the cost of running the temple. The tithe was, was what fed the Levites and the priests because the Levites didn't have an inheritance in the land. So, so they were fed, they were supplied by the tithe. That was their source of income, that was their source of food, that was their source of life really. Literally the tithe is 10% of their annual income which they gave to God. And the tithe was given by everyone. It was given by the Levites they're the, the, recipro- the recipients of the tithe, and still they're promising to give their tithe. They're all committed to give freely to the Lord as he had commanded them. And that, might, that, that really ought to be the mark of us as well. We are called to be a generous people who give our first and our best to God. And I know that when it comes to talking about money, this this can be a touchy subject for some people. And you might feel a little bit of sense of anxiety or kind of nodding up in your chest as we're talking about money. But but as we do, as we talk about giving and, and we talk about money, this ought to be important to us because it was important to God. So, so the first thing we need to recognize is we're talking about giving generously is the fact that the people's giving was an outflow of their heart position. 
They didn't give because they were trying to buy God's blessing. They, they didn't give because they were told they had to. The people committed to give generously because their hearts had been changed by the word of God. I mean, think about it. We're at chapter 10 right now. And this is the first time we see the Israelite community talking about giving collectively to the temple, giving to God. We've gotten the whole wall rebuilt, built. we've got the temple rebuilt, and just now we're talking about giving. This isn't about giving to earn God's blessing. They've already got it. This is about heart change. Their hearts have been changed by the word of God, and now they're giving. And for Christians today, that's what we need to remember. As Christians, we're, we're not under the, the law that commands us to tithe. The tithe doesn't apply to us directly in that sense because we're part of the new covenant. Jesus fulfilled the whole law for us. So we live under the law of Christ. But the law of Christ is a law of generosity. We need to understand that. Whenever Jesus taught about money, one of his main points of emphasis was to show us that how we think about money, what, we're, what goes through our head, is how we save, how we spend our money will reveal where our heart is at. If you want to know what your priorities are, you want to know where your devotions lie, I can be blunt with you and just say, look at your bank account. Look at your credit and debit card statements. Because where your money is going is going to show you where your heart is at. Jesus told us not to store up our treasures on earth where, where everything fades and, and falls away, but to store up our treasures in heaven. You know, every day as I drive, every time I drive down Highway 98, which is becoming a daily thing for me, there's this brick house on the north side of Highway 98. And it is a beautiful house. Or it was at one point. I don't know if you know the house I'm talking about. It's a two-story, beautiful house just off the road. That house was a mansion at one point. And, and I told Katie as we were driving in today, I said, man, I would love, if I, like, if I won the lottery, I would love to just take that house and make it what it was before. But where is that house now? Like it's falling apart, the roof is falling in, and it's a disaster, and it's, it's hideous. And it's, if I'm placing all of my hope in my house, I need to know that my house is going to look like that one or worse someday. It's going to fade away, it's going to rust, it's going to rot, it's going to fall apart. It's not eternal. So when Jesus taught us about what we do with our money, his priority, what he told us to do, is to take our money, take all of our wealth, take all of our treasures, and place it where it matters. Place it toward heaven. Place it towards his kingdom. And the reason that we do that, the reason we want to have our, our giving focused in that way is that where our treasure is, that's where our heart is also. You know where, you want to know where your heart's at? You, you want to know, like really know where your heart is at. Do like I said a minute ago. Look at your bank account. Look at your, your check statements. Look, look at all of that because where you're placing your money, money will give you a really good indicator of where your priorities lie. But as I'm talking about giving to God, I want to pause for a moment and anchor down on something that I, I know I've told you this before, like a million times. It's got to be getting old, but we have to have this clear in our heads right now. I need this to be clear in your minds as we're talking about giving. 
And that's the reality that God doesn't want your money. You hear me? I'll say it again. God doesn't want your money. God doesn't need your money. He wants you. He wants your heart. Listen, there there hasn't been a single revival in all of salvation history that started with a fundraiser. Every single revival that has ever happened has started by God changing the hearts of men and women. But all throughout history, going all the way back to the beginning of Israel, we always get this backwards. I don't know why, but we do, which is why over and over throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms and in the prophets, we read some like really crazy things that God says. Like uh, two examples, Amos chapter five, verse 21. Could you imagine God saying this to us? I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Could you imagine God saying that about our Sunday gathering? Like, even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept. Hey, you're passing the plate. I'm not taking it. And peace offerings, your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Tell Nathan to put the guitar down, turn off the microphone. I don't want to hear it. Could you imagine God saying that to us? Or or maybe we look to Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 and 13, where, where God says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Bring no more vain offerings to me. Incense is an abomination to me. Could you imagine God saying that to us? Why is he saying that? It's because God didn't want their stuff. He wanted their heart. And it's the same thing for us. God doesn't want your money. He wants you. It's not about the gift that you're giving. It's not about the sacrifice that you're offering up. It's about your heart position. It's the heart behind the gift. God is telling the people, you're giving me things, but you're not giving me your heart. I want you. I want your heart. But because if we're after what God is after, then we're going to give him our heart. That's what he wants. The gift is merely a, a statement of our heart position. We need to understand that. And if you're on board with me at this point, if you're, if you're with me at that point, then you, you might be asking, well, if God doesn't want our stuff, then, then why do we give? That's a fair question, right? If God doesn't want my money, if God doesn't need my money, then then why do I give? And the answer is that we give so that we can sacrifice. We, We give as a reminder to ourselves that our hope isn't in stuff. Our hope is not in our job. It's it's not in our money. Our hope is in Jesus. We give because we recognize that everything that we have has been given to us by God. 
It's all a good gift from him. When when you give, you're saying, God, I, I know that you have blessed me in all of these ways. You've given me all this stuff, but I acknowledge that my hope is not in this stuff. My hope is in you. That's why we give. We're saying, I need you, not this stuff. Okay? So so if that's why we give, the next logical question is, how much do we give? And how do we give? And the answer to those questions is found in Scripture too. The answer is that you give as God has led you to give. And, And I say that not to make you feel guilty, I'm not trying to make you feel like, man, I don't give enough. And Josh Josh is saying that so that I'll give more. That's not at all my point. My my point is I'm saying that because that's what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 tells us that each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Each of us has to decide how much to give. But the how the how we give, that's, that's laid out plainly right there in that verse. We give freely. We, we don't give out of obligation because we owe God. We, we don't give out of guilt because we feel like we have to give. We're not trying to buy God's favor. We give freely. And we also give cheerfully. Not begrudgingly, not resentfully, but cheerfully we give. That's the how. But back to the how much. Because I feel like that's the part we struggle with. And and if I can just kind of step aside for a second. Okay? This is Josh talking. This isn't scripture. This is just me. This is how I approach it, okay? This is my thoughts, not scripture, just Josh. Just Josh talking here, okay? For my family, for me, Tama, Katie, Kylie, this is how we do it. We start with the tithe. And we start with the tithe for a very simple reason. And that's that I am really bad at math. And I know that the tithe is 10%. So all I have to do is I, I look at my income and I move that decimal place over one point. I can do that, right? So that gives me kind of the baseline. That is the absolute minimum that we give, 10%. And we are consistently working to give more. And, and just kind of as a principle of priorities, as we give, we, we also give first. But before I transfer any money to my savings account, before I go and buy that new tool, that's, for me, that's toys. I don't know what your toys are. You know, maybe, maybe it's a, a boat, maybe whatever, whatever it is for you. Before I go and spend any money on that, I give first. And I'm not going to lie. There have been weeks where I forget to write that check writes checks anymore. There have been, there've been weeks, okay, like half the room, my bad. There have been weeks where I've forgotten to text to the point to 73256, shameless plug, right? And, and, and so I haven't given my tithe. So when that happens, more with the checks, less with the texting, because you can do that anytime. We take that money, we set it aside, and it is untouchable. I, I don't borrow from my tithe to go buy groceries, I don't borrow from my tithe for, it is untouchable until it's given. Just because I'm flawed. That's how the Heislers do it. It's not scripture, that's just how we give. What you do is between you and God. There is a reason as your pastor, I have 
almost nothing to do with the money involved in this church. It's a very intentional decision. I don't look at how much people give because I don't want to know. That's between you and God. I don't handle the money because I don't want there to be the implication that I am somehow doing something inappropriate. I have nothing to do with the money. That's, that's me. How much you give, that's between you and God. That is not my business. But as you give, you give cheerfully. You give as you've decided in your heart to give. If you're feeling guilt about how much you should give, my guess, my guess is that that's the Holy Spirit working on you. And that's for you to, to work with God. That's not me trying to make you feel guilty here. But I think we need to remember that, that this isn't just about financial giving. There's a lot of other ways that we can give. You can give your time and your talents. And, and last service, I singled out Jason Werner and, and Kristen Werner because of how they've given to help make sure that Feed Alberta happens. But I'm going to, without permission, and I'm sorry, Shane, I'm going to thank Shane real quick because he's another man that gives. And there's everybody in this room gives, but he gives his time and his talents. That man's an electrician, and he knows what he's doing. And he has helped us with our renovation processes by giving his time and his talent to the church. You can do the same thing. Sorry, Shane, I know you don't like me doing that. We can give our time in our, and our talent in addition to giving financially, but as we give, in all that we give, we always give our first and our best. That's what we saw coming from the people who are committing themselves to give generously. You give your first and your best. That's what God gave us. That's why we're able to do it. Because God gave us his first and his best when he sent his son from heaven to live the life that we couldn't live, to buy our freedom, to buy our reconciliation from our sin to God. God gave us his first and best. And because of that sacrifice, that's the reason, like that is the core reason why we can be generous. Because in Christ, we have everything. Everything else compared to Christ, everything else, that new car you're buying will one day be a little, like, three foot by three foot cube in a wrecking yard somewhere. It's gonna happen. One day, it'll be a ball of rust. One day, that beautiful house that you, you have or that you want, that you're going after, it will be a hill of dirt. Everything's gonna fade away. But in Christ, we get eternity with God. We get to spend eternity with Jesus, which is the ultimate treasure. And compared to Christ, everything, it's all just stuff. So let me challenge you today. Give generously. In the course of this study through the book of Nehemiah, we've, we've looked at how the word can change your life. As you study the word of God, it can change your life and it can lead us to repentance. But what I hope you're seeing as we look at chapter 10 today is that repentance will lead us into a newfound commitment to God. And here in chapter 10, what we've been seeing is that there are kind of three examples of what that commitment can look like. The people were committed to obey God. The people were committed to right worship. And the people were committed to give generously. As a people, we're called to obedience. We're, we're called to worship, and, and we worship We worship in spirit and in truth. 
we, we're called to live generously. And so we, we are a blessing because we've been blessed. That's why God blesses us, so that we can be a blessing. So today I want to challenge you in those three specific areas. I want to challenge you to commit to obey God. And, and again, this isn't obedience in, in the spirit of thinking, how do I avoid sin? This is obedience in the spirit of how do I look more like Jesus? How do I grow into more Christ-likeness? I want to challenge you to write worship. I want you to, to challenge you to live a life of worship where every single day you're looking for ways that you can worship God with your time, with your talent, with your treasure, with the people that you interact with, whether it's at work or at the store or, or at school for those of you that are going to school. However you're living life, let me challenge you to live a life of worship. And finally, let me challenge you to be committed to giving generously to going above and beyond, to giving more, recognizing that everything you have is a gift from God. Let me challenge you in those ways. That's what the scripture is showing us.